This morning we arrive at 3 John, and it's inversion of 2 John's theme I told you last week, namely that truth needs love. So if, if last week 2 John explained for us why love needs truth, then 3 John this morning is going to show us why truth needs love. Even the context of these two letters are inverted. You remember 2 John was written primarily to warn the church against showing hospitality to the wrong people, to deceivers and antichrist, as John called them last week. Third John, by contrast, was written to encourage the church positively to show hospitality to the right people, as we will see. In both cases, as I said, the circumstances in mind here concern Christian hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia, comes from the words philos, which means brotherly love, and xenos, like xenophobia, means foreigner or stranger. So hospitality literally means to treat a stranger like a brother. Biblical hospitality then isn't about who keeps the cleanest house. It's not about bringing out the fine china and silver. I don't know about you all. Um, for me, that doesn't make me feel uh, like family. That makes me feel like a stranger, like a guest in someone's house. No, biblical hospitality means you, you make that stranger feel like family in all of the best ways. And so if our hospitality, if we are called not to be 50% loving and 50% truthful, it's love and truth balance, but 100% loving and 100% truthful, you remember I said last week, love and truth are not uh, at odds with one another, they're not, you know, in intention. It's not like if you, you're 70% truthful, then you can only be 30% loving. They're opposite sides of the same coin. Therefore, truth means we have to first figure out who we're dealing with in our hospitality. Is this a person, a fellow worker for the truth, as 3 John is addressing today, or are they a deceiver or an antichrist, as 2 John addressed last week? Because the truth about someone's identity will determine the way in which we love them. As we said last week, the most loving thing you can do for a false teacher is to show them the door, show them the left foot of fellowship, as it were. 2 John verse 10, don't even greet such a person. But by contrast, if we're dealing with a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, then 3 John this morning is going to encourage us to support such people, verse 8, to welcome them, verse 10, because truth needs love. That's the message for this morning. So would you stand with me one last time as uh, we read together the entire book of 3 John? The elder, hear the word of the Lord, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its ability to change hearts. As Jeff reminded us this morning, not just to make bad people, good people, but to make dead people come alive. That's what we ask and pray for this morning, Father. Would you cause any deadness left in our heart because of sin to come alive? Father, would you cause an unbeliever's heart who might be here this morning, who doesn't yet know you, to come alive with new life in Christ as we submit ourselves under the authority of your word and as we listen for the love and truth that John has for us this morning. We pray this for our good, but for your glory, most of all, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated again. As I told you, Third John is the shortest book of the Bible, just 219 words in the original Greek but uh, I would not count on this being the shortest sermon you have ever heard. There is just too much good meat to dig into here. Third John is widely considered one of the most personal of all the New Testament epistles. It is one of only two letters, along with the Apostle Paul's letter to Philemon from two weeks ago, that was written from a single person, in this case, the Apostle John, to a single person. Third John is addressed to Gaius, but beyond that, just listen to the intimately personal, the genuinely loving language that John uses for Gaius here. He calls him beloved four times. John then reemphasizes and he personalizes his love for Gaius in verse 1. He says, whom I love, he uses the emphatic first person pronoun, John prays in, in, in verse 2 and blesses every part of Gaius' life, mind, body, and spirit. He rejoices over him in verse 3. He calls Gaius his child, his own child in verse 4. John applauds him in verses 5 through 8. He exhorts him in love in verses 9 through 12. And then he leaves Gaius in verses 13 through 15 with a loving virtual greeting and the hopeful anticipation of a loving in-person reunion soon. This letter is full of love. And as I said, John's big message is that truth needs love for five reasons that we're going to see. Number one, because love encourages the truth. Truth needs love because love encourages the truth. 
Gaius wins the award in verses 1 through 4 here for the warmest greeting of any New Testament letter recipient. John is just gushing in his encouragement of this man, the beloved Gaius, whom I loved. I pray that all may go well with you. I rejoice greatly over news of you. I have no greater joy than to hear good things about you. Now, that's, that's the main point, but a few tangential but significant observations here. Verse 1, as was the case in Second John, rather than identify himself as the Apostle John, he addresses this letter as the elder. It's from the elder, as I mentioned last week, to emphasize his role as an elder, as an overseer, authoritative overseer within this network of churches. But also, I would note this morning, that the word elder literally means older, right? John was old by the time he wrote this. We think likely in his 80s or 90s. And so we just encourage you, let, let that be an encouragement. They're, they're all uh, in our second service because they all do Sunday school together at 9 o'clock. But I'm going to encourage at the, the 1045 hour, our octa and nonagenarians here at West Hills, we're blessed to have so many of them at our church. John's example proves that I'm going to convict them in the second service. They don't ever get to retire from ministry, right? Because John was still authoring authoritative scripture into his 80s and 90s. So they might not be able to to chase toddlers around the nursery anymore. But we're going to find jobs for them. So the elderly John here is writing to the beloved Gaius. We know of three other Gaiuses in the New Testament, none of which is to be identified with the Gaius here of 3 John. Uh, but, but we know this was one of those common names in Roman society. So he could be anyone. We don't know. He could be anyone. But he's not just anyone. He's not just any old guy, us. In John's eyes, this guy, us, is special. John loves him. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul as well. Now, I mentioned last week, brief aside, in discussing last week's false teachers of Second John, that one of the most prevalent false teachings in today's church world is the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you are a believer, God really, really wants to make you healthy and wealthy and happy in this life. It's an absurd teaching for anyone who's read really any of the New Testament, but it's uh, one of the favorite verses that prosperity deceivers love to rip out of context is Third John verse 2 here. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, that was just a common greeting in ancient Roman letters. It would be like me opening a message these days, an email with, I hope this email finds you well. That's not to say that John didn't mean it. We just need to be careful building a whole theology around a verse like this. Moreover, we need to notice that this is a prayer, right? John says, I pray that all may go well with you, but prosperity deceivers turn this into a promise. Folks like Kenneth Copeland consider 3 John verse 2 a universal promise of perfect health for every believer. I don't know where you get that from 3 John verse 2. We Orthodox believers can only pray that people like Kenneth Copeland would catch COVID. We, we can't pray that he would die. That, that would probably not be Christian and loving. But we should pray that he catches it because that might at least convince that his misled followers that by his own logic, his faith is clear, clearly lacking, right? If his perfect health faltered, and perhaps then they would begin to question his ridiculous, pernicious ideas. 
So moving on, verse 3, John writes, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Typically, in the New Testament, brothers can refer to any group of Christian believers, but John makes it clear here in verses 5 through 8 that he is referring more specifically to a group of itinerant Christian teachers who John had presumably mentored and discipled for the sake of ministering to his network of churches throughout Asia Minor. We'll, we'll talk about that more context here in a moment. But they've brought good news of Gaius' spiritual state back to John. And so John rejoices in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's likely that John uh, may have even led Gaius to faith in Christ himself. At the very least, John, the elder here, served as a kind of spiritual father to Gaius. Speaking of ways that our elderly saints here at West Hills can serve our church, one of the most important ways that I think you all, who are older, can serve us, younger generations, is by investing in, mentoring, discipling us. Several uh, of our spiritual Fathers and mothers here at West Hills have begun doing that. I was so encouraged this past week reading over the survey results of those of you who participate now in our discipleship groups here at the church. Survey after survey of folks saying, I'm so glad that we uh, started these discipleship groups. I've been praying for a Christian female mentor in my life, or I, I have been feeling called to disciple younger men in the faith. And finally, I'm doing it. I, I turned to Powell and I said, I don't know why we didn't start these years ago. You know, better late than never. So John is, is like a spiritual father here to Gaius. And as a father, his greatest joy is to hear that his children are walking in the truth. The same is true of every Christian parent here today. You, know, you want to talk about love and truth. If you are truly a Christian, <clears throat> then you know the truth about heaven and hell about the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus, of not walking in the truth. And if you're a loving parent, then nothing is going to cause you more sleepless nights than the thought of your own kids, who you love more than anything in the world, rejecting Jesus and spending eternity separated from him. I know this is so personal for so many of you here. Maybe some of you I know came to faith later in life after you had already raised your kids not in the faith. You deal with the guilt of that. Some of you had your kids here every Wednesday and Sunday growing up. You did everything right, and they still strayed from the faith. There is no greater sorrow for a parent than to hear that your children are walking in the darkness, in the lies of the world. I see your prayer requests, and I pray for you, and I pray with you. I want you to know that as your pastor. I pray with you for your kids, and I ask for you to pray with me, for mine, for Ellery and Elijah. Being a pastor's kid does not guarantee them a spot in heaven. If anything, it probably increases the likelihood of a rebellious phase somewhere down the road for them. So please pray for me, for my kids. Pray with me for my kids. You can pray for me if you like, but I'm asking you to pray with me for my children. Here's the crux of point number one. Would Gaius be walking in the truth if not for John's obvious and profound love for him. See, love encourages the truth. Do you think that Gaius would be the man of truth that he is without John's fatherly love and shepherding in his life? Would I be walking in the truth 
today, if not for the loving encouragement I received all those years from my own father, my mother, from my youth pastor, my next door neighbor and mentor, from my pastoral disciple makers over the years, if God wants to grab you with the truth, yes, he can use any means necessary to accomplish it. God is using visions and dreams of Jesus over, all over the Middle East. But what is the most common, most effective, most life-changing way that God typically brings someone to a knowledge of the truth? It's through a loving relationship with another believer. And so let me ask you this morning, by way of application, I want to apply each of these five points who could you lovingly encourage in the truth this week? This morning, don't wait. <laughs> Pull out your phone, send them a text right now, call them later. I will give you an example right now. I will do it for you. And I don't even have to embarrass him because he's out of town this week. Cole Deming. Cole Deming called me last week and asked if I had any advice for him for sharing the gospel with his coworker, who's one of these hyper-analytical engineering brain types, we prayed together over their coming conversation. I have the greatest job in the world. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, my brothers in the faith, Cole, aren't just walking in the truth, but are actually walking others toward the truth. That brings your pastor no greater joy. That's a great segue to point number two. Truth needs love because love empowers the truth. It empowers the truth. Gaius, like Cole, is not only walking in the truth personally, but his own love, verse 6, compels him to support, verse 8, the truth-bearing brothers that John is sending to the church. Now again, here's the context. Christianity was brand new on the scene. The reason there were so many issues in these churches that the apostles were addressing so much false teaching that the New Testament writers are, are writing to warn about was because everybody's a new believer. Think about how much teaching you have to do with new believers. I've had the honor of leading just a few people, mostly students in my youth group days, in the past to Christ. There's no greater joy than to lead someone to Christ. But like physical babies, spiritual babies newborns require a lot of work. You've got to feed them. You've got to teach them. You've got to train them up in the way they should go. But what about when you've got a whole church full of them? Spiritual infants, because they just heard about Jesus for the first time six months ago when you rolled into town. But now it's time for you to move on to the next town because the gospel has got to go be preached in every nation. And so what do they do? When Paul, you know, when Paul tells Timothy that an elder must not be a recent convert in 1 Timothy 3.6. I think we take that today to mean like, you've got to be a Christian for 10 or 12 years to be an elder, minimum. For Paul, it was probably more like 10 or 12 months, maximum. That would have been a rare, exceptional leader, elder, that Paul had the, the privilege to disciple for an entire year between all of his traveling. And so what did the apostles do? They took guys like Timothy and Barnabas and Silas and Luke and John Mark and others that we hear about in the book of Acts and elsewhere. They took them along with them on their missionary journeys and then they discipled them as they went and then they would send them back as these itinerant teachers, often carrying the New Testament letters to the churches to check in on and further train up these established churches while Paul and the other apostles would push on into new uncharted territory. But sometimes those established churches didn't even know 
the disciples of Paul and John, they just knew Paul or John. And so the apostles, what they would do is they'd send these letters of recommendation on their behalf to the churches. And so that's the backdrop for John's praise here of Gaius in verse 5 when he says, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, you, might, you don't even know them, but they testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. John is saying here, don't just feed them for a couple days and then send them out empty-handed. He said, if it's truly more blessed to give than to receive, as our Lord taught us, then Gaius, these brothers, these first century missionaries, they present you with an opportunity to be blessed yourself if you will faithfully bless them. Verse 6, in a manner worthy of God himself. Treat them like you would treat God, like Jesus. Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality, philoxenia, to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Abraham did it. Genesis, remember? I've heard of pastors you know, asking their church, if Jesus himself walked into our church this Sunday, kind, gentle, loving, but a smelly, dust-covered Middle Eastern man had sat down right behind you, how would our church react? These are the kinds of questions we need to ponder as a church. Assess our hospitality. In Gaius' case, he does the right thing. He shows these stranger brothers true Christian hospitality. As John says, we all ought to. Verse 8, we ought to support people like these, that we also may be fellow workers for the truth. So how can you and I apply this in our own lives? Ask yourself, in what tangible ways can you today as a fellow worker in the truth, lovingly empower the spread of God's gospel truth to all nations, starting right here in your own city, in your own Jerusalem, St. Louis. I would argue that in context, the lesson to be learned from Gaius' example here is that it is important for you personally to support the gospel ministry of the church, financially. Now, if you have been at West Hills these past two years and four days that I have been lead pastor now, you know how infrequently I like to talk about financial giving. It came up in the story of the widow's might in, verse, in, in Mark 12 uh, when we preached through Genesis 14 when God invented tithing with Abraham and Melchizedek. So I, I talk about money when God's word forbids me from avoiding it, basically. But here's the deal. I'm not asking you to give to West Hills financially because we're in a tough spot as a church. We're not. Praise God. I'm not asking you to give because I need a raise. I don't. Although I probably wouldn't refuse it if you force the issue. And I'm certainly not asking you to give so that God can bless you materially. You just sow your seed of faith and God's going to make you rich and all that garbage. No, I'm asking you to give... Because like Gaius, you love the truth. And you love this church's ministry of the truth, our ministry of the word, the gospel. And you believe, like we do, that more people need to hear the truth. They need to know the truth, the capital T truth. Jesus, who we sang about, I believe he's the way, the truth, and the life. They need to hear about him. And you see him moving in the life of this church, and you want to be a part of helping make that possible for others. 
You want to be a fellow worker for the truth. If that is you, then we would be honored to have you support West Hills financially. I won't apologize for it. I, I, I'm grateful to give you the opportunity to do that. You can drop a check off on your way out today. You can go to our website right now. But if that's not you, then I would just lovingly but truthfully encourage you to check your heart this morning because one of two things is probably going on. Either, number one, you love money more than you love the ministry that it was meant to empower. If that's the case, that's just greed. All the more reason to give. You kill greed with generosity. Or, number two, you just can't bring yourself to support the ministry of this church in particular. Church statistics tell us that people stop giving three to six months before they leave a church. If that is you, I want you to know for, for what it's worth, for my part, you have my blessing as a pastor to go find a church where you can joyfully give and serve and be used by God so long as it's a gospel-preaching church. Because true love empowers the truth in tangible ways. All right? Number three, truth needs love because love enforces the truth. Now we get to the real reason for the letter. Sure, John loves Gaius, but John didn't go to the trouble of sending a letter halfway around the known world just to encourage Gaius. No, the situation here is that this church leader, Diotrephes, is causing trouble. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about Diotrephes. We don't hear about him anywhere else in Scripture or in church history. Just these two verses. And so we don't know, for instance, why Diotrephes took issue with John and the brothers. Or I should say what excuse he gave to the rest of the church for his disapproval of them. I think that we do know the real reason he opposed them, which I'll explain in a moment. But we also don't know just how bad this dude was. Some scholars suggest that Diotrephes was himself a false teacher. Or at least in cahoots with them. Most think, and I think, that he probably wasn't, because otherwise John would have probably exhorted Gaius to just put Diotrephes out of the church. So what do we know about the situation? What we do know is two important things. Number one, we know that Diotrephes was a selfish, power-hungry leader who was probably insecure and envious of John's obvious apostolic authority amongst this church. John diagnoses Diotrephes' sin in verse 9, he says he likes to put himself first as the worst possible trait for a supposedly Christian leader. Remember how Jesus himself defined leadership in, within his church? Matthew chapter 20, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or listen to how Jesus' top disciple, Peter, exhorted the elders that he trained up. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock 
of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Diotrephes is the opposite of all these character traits. It's all about him. And he'll do whatever it takes to assert himself and his authority over against John and the brothers. Look at the fourfold progression of his unlovingness exemplified here. Diotrephes starts with slander, tactic one. You know, he's talking wicked nonsense about John and the brother. I think John must have had a, a Bostonian accent, judging by his use of the phrase talking wicked nonsense. But at any rate, Diotrephes, he's bad-mouthing John and the brothers. Then he begins to snub them, slander, snub. Verse 10, he refuses to welcome the brothers. The preaching is no longer welcomed in his church. Then he's so insecure and paranoid that he actually stops them, stops those who want to show hospitality and welcome the brothers. So slander, snubs, he stops them. And finally, not content with that, John says, he actually shuns fellow believers altogether who are doing the right thing, the loving thing. He says, if you support them, John and the others, Diatrophy says, then you're kicked out of my church. And friends, as much as I would love to tell you that the church has changed in the last uh, 2,000 years, we know that there's nothing new under the sun, is there? And unfortunately, pastors and elders still are just as susceptible to being self-centered and greedy and envious, domineering, insecure, controlling, power-hungry sinners as we've ever been. Should I be suspicious, Pastor Thad? Here's a, a bright gifted, young, up-and-coming pastor, only eight years my junior. Some of y'all like his preaching better than mine. You see where this begins to creep in? It's good job security for Diotrephes to cast aspersions on John's character. John is a threat to Diotrephes' own authority within his church. But despite that, the second thing that we know here, more importantly, is how John plans to deal with him. For starters, John has already written something to the church, he says in verse 9, but Diotrephes used the Michael Scott uh, special filing bin, the garbage can, for that letter. And so 3 John actually should have been 4th John, or I suppose you could even make the argument that had Diotrephes not trashed John's earlier letter, our current 3rd John wouldn't have ever even needed to be written. Praise God that he is redemptive enough to even use human sin, Diotrephes' sin, as the catalyst for his own holy inspired word. That's the redemptive God that we serve. But by the way, did you hear that we found more Dead Sea Scrolls this past week? That's pretty exciting. How cool would it be if we found the first third John, John's earlier letter that Diotrephes ignored, just an aside. But John had written to try and address this stuff already. Diotrephes trashed that letter, and so what does John do? Now he writes to Gaius to prepare him. Because Jesus himself instructed us in Matthew 18 in how to deal with the brother in sin. Remember, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. John tried going to Diotrephes alone through a letter. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, like Diotrephes, then take one or two others along with you. So now John's writing to gather a couple brothers, like Gaius, in anticipation of confronting Diotrephes face to face with a small group, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he still refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. And so that's the process that John is working here in his confrontation. But here's the main point. It takes love to enforce the truth, to confront. It takes love to confront. John is planning to confront Diotrephes because three things. Number one, his love for Diotrephes. John knows that he cannot let his brother continue down this path of sin and destruction. Number two, John loves the church. He cannot let Diotrephes continue to wreak havoc and confusion and lead others astray with his insecure, inhospitable jealousy. And most of all, John's going to confront him, number three, because John loves the Lord. And if Jesus says that the right thing to do is to confront, then even if it makes you uncomfortable, then John would, would rather be uncomfortable but obey the Lord. So apply this to your own life, beloved. Who might God be calling you to lovingly confront in the truth this week? Maybe you have been putting off that uncomfortable conversation for months, for years, under the guise of love, under the guise of, I just need to bear with them. Maybe you need to confront them. Maybe the loving thing to do is to confront them in truth, with love. For some of you, it may be your pastor. A few of y'all at home have been dodging my calls. I'll call you out. I doubt if those people are still tuning in, but maybe someone here, maybe someone tuning in who you will pick up the phone for will feel convicted about their need to confront you about your unwillingness to come and confront me so that we can talk about whatever I said or did that upset you. This is what Christians do for one another in love. Point number four, truth needs love because love exalts the truth. Verses 11 and 12, John exhorts Gaius. Beloved, do not imitate evil. Don't imitate those like Diotrephes, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And then John offers Gaius a counterexample in verse 12 in the ministry of Demetrius. Demetrius probably is the one carrying this letter from John to the church, to Gaius. Demetrius himself is probably at risk of being kicked out by Diotrephes. If Gaius doesn't lovingly shelter him, show him hospitality. And so John commends and exalts the example of Demetrius in his faithful service. He says, he has received a good testimony from everyone, from the truth itself, Truth is objective. You can't argue with the truth of Demetrius' loving example. And then John adds, we also add our own testimony. Because remember, Jesus just told us, Matthew 18, everything should be established on, on the, the, wit, the basis of three witnesses. It's Deuteronomy 19.15. So the whole church, the truth itself, and me, John. But I think John has someone else in mind in verse 11 when he zooms out and says, do not imitate evil, but good. He's not just talking about Demetrius there, because after all, the ultimate example of good worth our imitation, worthy of our imitation, the perfect embodiment of goodness, capital G, good, 
was who? Jesus himself. John is saying, Jesus is the one you want to imitate. John states it plainly elsewhere in his letters. 1 John 2, he says, whoever says that he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Christians, those of us in Christ, we ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, to live it out, to imitate his example. 1 John 4, John says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. We imitate what we celebrate. And who is more worthy of our celebration, our exaltation, than Jesus? And so let me ask you this morning, application, whose example do you imitate? Who do you strive to live for, to live like, to please. I hope it's Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the gospel truth. Always got to bring it back to the gospel. When you inevitably fail to live up to God's perfect standard as evidenced, embodied in the person of Jesus, do you trust in his unfailing love for you even more than your love and imitation of him. John says in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the gospel, friends. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you. Not that you so imitated him so closely that based on your good deeds, you can get, if you are trusting, beloved, in, in, in your own ability to please God, to imitate Christ enough, if that's what you're betting your spot in heaven on, rather than on Christ's love for you, his willingness to lay down his life for you as the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice that satisfied a holy God's just wrath against your sin, then you're in trouble. Have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? That's, that's the only application question you need this morning. That, that's where you've got to start. If you haven't done that, put your trust in Jesus and his love for you first. Finally, number five, truth needs love because love enjoys the truth. Love encourages, it empowers, it enforces, it exalts, and finally love enjoys the truth. Similar to 2 John, John is going to conclude this letter in verses 13 through 15 on a loving note. He says, listen, I've got more to say to you, Gaius, because I love you so much. I'd love to keep going on, but I'm running out of parchment, and it's expensive. So I'd rather just catch up in, in face face-to-face -face soon anyway. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. John says, listen, we're not just brothers. It's the word he's used all along, but we're friends too. A brother is someone you have to love, right? You gotta love family. There are folks of the church 
I love because I got to love them. (laughs) But friends are people you like, people you enjoy. John says, man, I can't wait to hang out with you. I, I genuinely like you, Gaius. Can't wait to hang out again soon, to swap ministry stories of what God has been doing in each of our lives. He says, till then, peace be with you. All the friends here say hey. Greet all the friends in, in your church, wherever, whatever city Gaius is in, we don't know. Greet them each by name. That's how he ends. Maybe this was a small house church, so Gaius knew all of their names. Maybe it wasn't a church of 300 and growing each week like West Hills. Praise God. But brothers and sisters, if I could just spin it for you, you know, some of y'all tell me at entry point, you know, I was looking for a smaller, you know, family type field church. The size is not a good church, reason to pick a church. Because if we're doing anything right, this church is going to keep growing. And so what are you going to do then? Just keep church hopping? I want to spin it for you and say, brothers and sisters, this just means that you have more friends, more opportunity for friends than John did. you got 300 potential friends here to enjoy loving Christian community with. One of the things that I've been looking forward to most throughout this whole pandemic is when I finally get to introduce some of my awesome new friends of three, six, 12 months to some of my awesome old friends that I haven't seen in 12 months. It's going to be a beautiful thing because love enjoys fellowship in the truth. So your last application question, do you enjoy loving relationships with others in this church community? If you feel like you don't yet, then we would love to get you plugged in. Stick around for Ultimate Frisbee today. Come back at noon. Stick around for, for, for Bible study at 1045 at the, the second hour. We're going to have more and more fellowship opportunities coming up as the restrictions loosen, God willing, to, to, to get together and to enjoy loving relationships in the truth. I encourage you, meet new people. Get to know these people's names. They're good people. It's not fair that I'm the only one that knows everybody. I want you all to know and love one another. What a blessing it is to be a part of a loving church community. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.